his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's now been one year since the VTA rail yard shooting in San Jose that left 10 people dead, including the shooter. And this past week has been a time of somber remembrances. There are no words that can offer that will be able to express the profound loss that we experienced last year. Going forward is still a a day-by-day process for me. But even as survivors gathered to mourn and heal, A new burst of deadly gun violence struck a school in Texas, adding fresh tragedy during an especially sensitive moment for the South Bay community. It was triggering. It was very difficult. Brought back a lot. Brought back a lot of memories. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we consider the trauma that these mass shootings have left behind, and we also discuss what steps can be taken to chart a path towards healing. How do we develop resilience from this, right? When these very traumatic events happen, how can we find a way out of these feelings of distress? First up, one year on from the Bay Area's deadliest mass shooting, We're going to check in with two counselors who have been providing mental health support to those who have been impacted, including VTA workers and victims' loved ones. So we'll be hearing from Janet Childs, who founded the Center for Living with Dying. It's a program based out of San Jose that's been helping people cope with grief and loss for decades now. We're also going to hear from Sue Cronin, also with the Center. She leads a team that provides counseling and support following mass casualty incidents recently sat down with both of them to get some perspective on what the healing process has looked like in the wake of last year's shooting. Sue Cronin, thanks for being here. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for inviting us to speak with you today. And Janet Childs, thanks to you as well. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you, Keith. So 
awful lot going on this week, uh, but uh, I want to start off by getting our listeners kind of resituated in how this tragedy has unfolded in San Jose over the past year. Obviously, Sue, you've been on the program before to discuss this with us, but just to remind folks, uh, an event like this, the May 26th shooting, affects many, many different people. It is uh, not necessarily, certainly not just the victims that were in the room that day. It has wide ripple effects. And uh, many of those effects have involved mental health, it's involved trauma. And uh, you and your colleagues have been working with those affected literally since the morning of the shooting. So remind us a little bit about what that trauma has looked like and what that response has looked like as well. Sure. Um, On the morning of May 26th, we were alerted to a shooting near the VTA light rail yard. And of course, we know it turned out to be in the light rail yard, leaving um, nine dead as well as the gunman. And then later in the year, a 10th victim took his life in August as a result of the um, of the tragedy. That morning, we went down to the county building and provided support as both employees and family members were arriving at the county building and then later moved over to the Red Cross. And then in the weeks and months that followed, the support has been a combination of critical incident stress management and psychological first aid, which is non-clinical support. And then we also have clinical therapists who have been providing ongoing grief counseling, both uh, individual family and group counseling. And then we've been providing psychoeducation on stress management and coping skills for the VTA community through classroom settings as well as small group settings. So this is a kind of work that I think our listeners are becoming increasingly familiar with because these tragedies are becoming increasingly common uh, here in the Bay Area as well, also throughout the country. Um, And uh, we're actually lucky to have Janet Childs in the conversation because she can bring some conversation, uh, some perspective as to uh, how this work has unfolded over the previous decades. This is something that you've really focused on uh, for quite some time developing this field. So bring a little bit of that perspective, if you could. Um, You know, when you started this work, uh, were, were, were people even uh, aware that in these mass casualty incidents, uh, something like mental health was something that needed to be focused on? How has that changed over time? Well, it's amazing. When we started the Center for Living with Dying program in 1976, grief counseling wasn't even known as an entity that we needed in our lives as we deal with loss and change. And then realizing that when a major event happens, there are so many circles of influence, which we call so many people affected by the aftermath of a mass casualty or a big community event. And we started providing support to the community. And then about four years into the Center for Living with Dying, we started the Bay Area Critical Incident Stress Management Team, which was primarily set up to provide peer support to responders and caregivers on the front lines. And then we just invited that whole process to be also something that we did for the community that was affected by this. So it's responding to the responders, responding to the community. And at first, it was a very difficult sell, I'm going to be honest. People didn't realize that it was needed. And what we found is that by empowering people to come together and support each other who have survived incidents, they become the best support for each other, and we can create that safe environment. 
for them to understand that their responses are normal and natural and that support can be had and that we can provide continued support even in the long aftermath. And especially on the year anniversary, anniversary dates are particularly difficult because we anticipate the anniversary date. It's actually harder before the anniversary date than it is actually when the anniversary date hits. So being able to have that support and that continuity of support is so important. Yeah, well, that brings us to the anniversary that obviously we marked this past week, May 26th, one year since the shooting at the VTA Guadalupe Light Rail Yard in San Jose. And it's uh, to hear you tell it, to speak with the other workers, the witnesses, uh, Sue Cronin, uh, there have been a lot of ups and downs uh, over the course of that year. Uh, what, what, what would you hope that our listeners understood about the process that folks are going through at this point? I would hope that listeners understand that these stages of grief are not linear at all. We talk about the stages of grief, which are very valid. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did beautiful work uh, naming the stages of grief, but it is not a linear process. It's more like a roller coaster up and down and all around where some people might be feeling like they're healing one day and doing better. And then the next day, you know, they are very low again, very tearful, and it's just a process, a natural process. And especially with traumatic loss, um, people tend to be in shock for quite a longer period of time. And then the other feelings start surfacing later throughout the entire first year. And sometimes the public or people who haven't been through this think, oh, why can't they move on? Oh, they're still talking about it. Oh, is this still in the front of their mind? Yes, it is. You know, it's not something that you get over. It's something that you learn to carry with you. Speaking with Sue Cronin and Janet Childs, once again, with the Center for Living with Dying as part of the Bill Wilson Center in San Jose. So, Janet Childs, you know, given your uh, perspective uh, going back through the decades of many different disasters, obviously, it's probably hard to generalize about what any individual is going to be going through at this point. And we, we don't really want to make assumptions about what is happening in the community in Texas. Um, but as, as folks around the country try to just wrap their heads around this tragedy and try to get some handle on what, you know, community members are feeling at this moment, uh, what can you offer to our listeners to just help us maybe empathize a little bit better with the people that have been affected? One of the things that we can do is offer our compassionate support. And our, we have a saying at the Center for Living with Dying that actually comes from Uganda, and it's called, I stand beside you. And the, any way that we can stand beside them, not only in the immediate aftermath, but in the continuing process as they build their new life without their children, without their schoolmates, without you know what they have had. And this is such a devastating loss also because it's involving young children. You know, I was reminded um, visiting uh, Fire Department New York after 9-11, and I would visit a couple of years later, and then the five-year anniversary, and then the 10-year anniversary. And what we found is that people, for some people, it was still very fresh, especially if they didn't have ever a chance to really express how it had been for them, and they had been used to keeping it inside. So 
in a real way, the way we can help is to continue to honor them and continue to stand beside them by saying, we're here for you in whatever way works for you right now. And we care and we acknowledge it. And I want to offer that to our local listeners that for our VTA people, if you see a bus driver or a rail operator or a VTA you know, individual, just give them love. You can even do that you know, non-verbally, just give them a wave or, you know, touch your heart. And it lets them know that we as a community have not forgotten. Yeah. And it, it is striking that just the, the pace of these tragedies, obviously, you know, some amount of human tragedy has always been a fact of life through time immemorial. But uh, I mean, is it fair to say that this is happening more often than it used to? And, and, and if so, what, is, what does that mean for your work? Well, what that means is that we need to really mobilize and create long-term resiliency in the aftermath of these tragedies, but also even before they happen in the community. So if we can build resiliency and support for each other beforehand, we might be able to identify some of these issues before they turn into tragedies. And a beautiful example is we had a recent incident in our local area where police were able to uh, curtail an event that might have happened at a workplace because people were able to speak up and people were able to alert them and people were able to say we're concerned and we're worried. And so I think breaking the conspiracy of silence about if we're worried about somebody, if we're concerned about their behavior change, if we're maybe frightened, that we speak up. We break the conspiracy of silence. And we also, in our community, build long-term resiliency. And I believe that's what the Resiliency Center is about, how we can build that long-term resiliency so that we have that mental health support and also that community support that we can give for and with each other. And that also, of course, speaks to the importance of uh, California's red flag logs and making sure that, you know, when that information is there and when those worrying signs are there, that that information makes it to the right people. Um, Sue Cronin, I want to give you the closing thoughts. Uh, we've spoken uh, at length before, but I think it's worth repeating uh, just about what sorts of steps people can go through when they're in a crisis, when they're feeling down. Uh, and, and, and this is a really trying moment. You know, we've been through so many of these before, but there's something about this one, especially because it involves young children, that is just extra painful. And I, I can tell a lot of people are going through that right now. What would you hope that people knew about resilience and the tools of resiliency as we all go through this really difficult moment together? That's a great question. And as far as resiliency and what to do in the aftermath of this crisis, which is following other crises during the pandemic or you know several years into the pandemic, so people are really burned out right now and they are not feeling very resilient in general. And so to have the tools of acknowledging and expressing how you feel, again, taking the judgment off your head that I should be feeling one way or another, it's okay to say, I'm not feeling well, I'm feeling sad. You know, Just acknowledge and express how you're feeling in a healthy way. And then identify what do you need today in this moment to help you through that one next thing. And then reconnect to what we call your circle of meaning, the things in your life that bring you a sense of peace or comfort or grounding. So to acknowledge and express your feelings, identify your needs, and reconnect with something in your circle of meaning, that's the path to resilience. And it can be hard to do that when we're bogged down, when we're flooded with negative news. So we also recommend taking a news diet, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I got to do it sometimes too as well, so I understand. <laughs> so look at the news, but maybe limit the time, no more than 30 minutes at a time, especially with you know the negative news coming in. And then reach out for support. You know, the two things that make stress, crisis, grief feel worse are feeling isolated and feeling out of control. So focus on those things which are in your circle of control that you can do for yourself and move from the feeling of isolation into community. And that's different than needing alone time. If one of your needs is alone time, that's okay. But it's really important to stay connected um, in community during times like this. Perfect. A lot of great advice right there. Uh, We're going to round out this segment right here, though, speaking once again to Sue Cronin and Janet Childs. They are both with the Center for Living with Dying, part of the Bill Wilson Center in San Jose. Sue Cronin, thanks so much. Thank you, Keith. And Janet Childs, thank you as well. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker worker of yours. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. This past week, the horrors of gun violence have been thrust into the public consciousness once again. As San Jose marks one year since the VTA rail yard shooting, and the entire country confronts the tragedy and loss left behind by the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, now the third deadliest school shooting in American history. For many, this is a painful, frightening moment, and that includes the children and teenagers who are now left to wonder about their own safety in the classroom. So up next on the program, we're going to consider what parents can do to help their children cope. I put that question to Catherine Wen-Williams. She's a child and adolescent psychologist, also a professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego. Here's what she told me. Catherine Wen-Williams, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. So here we are uh, a few days out now from this shooting. Um, I'm sure that children and young people have had a lot of questions for their family members. There's been a lot of conversations going on. So 
those immediate conversations may have already taken place in a lot of cases. But this is coming at a time when there are already so many stressors that all of us are facing. And I think young people in particular are feeling. We just think about the disruptions at school and the ways that that's taken a mental health toll on many young people. So uh, I guess to start off our conversation, I'm curious for your perspective on how something like this, a mass shooting on a scale that we haven't seen in years uh, at a school, how does this add on to the stressors that young people are already facing? It's a great timely question because young people are already in the past two years experienced a global pandemic that is unprecedented in their lives. And so they have been fearful um, you know, of this unknown virus. And that's been chronic stress for the last two years. And now on top of it, there is an additional stress of um, you know, being fearful of going to school and whether one would survive um, being at school. So when you think about as adults, you know, if we're, we're stressed out at home, um, we're not getting enough sleep because of the stress. And then when we go to work and there's added stress on top of that, then you have much more limited coping skills. And you might be more likely to lash out or yell at your, your, your partner. Um, and that's the same with kids, uh, you know, with these multiple chronic stressors on top of each other, they just have more limited coping skills. And so we do need as, as adults, to be more patient and more mindful around them. Yeah. And after that initial shock, after that initial conversation, uh, the conversation really doesn't stop because, uh, I mean, obviously we are just seeing this issue come up again and again with school shootings. So uh, how, how, after you've had that initial conversation, where do you go from there? How do you continue to support uh, children, especially those that might be really sensitive to seeing these sorts of things on the news? Keith, you're really getting to the heart of what is so important that child psychologists are, are really acutely aware of, which is, you know, the first few days, kids, as well as many adults, are shocked. Um, they are in shock. They are numb. And those initial conversations, you know, I would say maybe half of what you're telling kids kind of get through um, because they're, they're in survival mode at that point. Um, and there's some, uh, you know, in an immediate way of, you know, you have to go back to school the next day, you're really scared. And so a lot of that information that your parents or teachers are telling you, some of it is, is not taken in. And so the ensuing days after, it's really, really important for parents and teachers and other adults in the kid's life to make sure that the kid knows that the conversation can continue, that you're open, that you're available, and the way to do that is you really wanna take the kid's lead. So you don't wanna keep pestering, of course, and peppering them with questions throughout you know, the next week. You know, how are you feeling now? What are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? But you wanna take their lead in that, um, you know, if you notice that they're being more quiet than usual, if you notice that there are increased tantrums, any kind of changes in behavior or mood, you just wanna kind of very kindly and openly check in in, in um, a non-judgmental way. So perhaps kind of making sure that there's a quiet time um, that's sort of safe, like maybe at home in their bedroom at night and just kind of sit down and, and just do an open-ended question. How, how are you doing today? Um, and, and you can also, if your child is a little bit less open to talk about their feelings, you can model that. You can say, you know, today was, was kind of stressful for mom. Hmm. You know, a lot of people were talking about what happened in Texas. You know, how was it for you at school? And so you've modeled for them that, hey, even mom is talking about being stressed or being anxious, and it's okay for you to talk about your anxiety about it. 
And then, and then from there, you can move on to, you know, what, what thoughts were going through your mind today? You know, what thoughts were you having? So you really want to ask about their feelings and their thoughts in the, the days. And I would even say weeks um, after. Again, not every single day peppering, but taking their lead and checking in with them. Yeah, and that point on modeling, I think, is uh, really interesting because um, now that I have a very young niece, it's reminding me how much we didn't know when we were that age. And these are all skills that we take for granted now, how to you know, get yes. through a difficult day, how to cope. But that's not something yes. you were born with. And uh, having that role as an adult in a, a young person's life, uh, you really can show rather than tell um, right. a, a, a lot of that, a lot of that skill, a lot of that, a lot of that coping capacity. Kids, especially after traumatic or stressful events, they look to the adults on how to respond. And so, you know, if you're saying, you know, be calm, be calm, be calm, but you're, you're yelling and you yourself looked really amped up, children will feel amped up. And so if they look at you to see like, am, am I supposed to be upset with this? Am I supposed to be scared? Um, and you do want to model for them you know, how to be calm, how to be resilient, and at the same time, how to acknowledge your emotions or your feelings. And so one of the ways would be, you might say, you know, I'm really scared, you know, about what's happening right now. I want to take some really deep breaths to help calm my body down. Or, you know, I'm going to go for, you know, a walk around the neighborhood. You know, would you like to go with me? And so you're modeling for the teen or for the kid, you know, how you manage, how you cope with that anxiety or that stress that you're experiencing. Yeah. Uh, just reminding our listeners, speaking once again to Catherine Wen Williams. She is a child and adolescent psychologist, also a professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego, talking about some of the best ways to talk to children after uh, difficult, traumatic events on the news like those that we've seen this past week. And this all, with so much going on here, it sort of raises the big question of just how much of this news should you expose children to? I mean, on the one hand, as somebody who works in news, I do think it's important for people to stay up to date, be informed, understand what's happening in the world. Uh, on the other hand, as somebody who also works in news, I understand the toll that that can take on somebody. And mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on the appropriate role? And I suppose it probably has a lot to do with the age and the temperament of the kid themselves. But what are the sorts of questions that uh, parents should be asking themselves when they consider how much of the news to bring to their children? You're absolutely right. It really varies widely. And so for very, very young children, I'm talking two, three-year-old, you may not need to say much at all. Um, you know, you do want to check in to see, you know, have they heard anything? You know, how was, how was school today? Because they may have experienced adults or other kids around them behaving a certain way that scared them. Um, but if they don't know much, you may not need to say much at all. Um, you, you may even be, you know, pretty um, simple, you know, that something, something, um, you know, awful has happened in another state, but you are safe here. Now, if you've got older children, which most of us, or many of us do, um, so if you've got you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, so school-aged children, then you'll want to, you want to talk more. You, what, the main thing you don't want to do is avoid the topic or avoid answering questions. If your child is asking you know, specific questions, you do want to answer even if it's uncomfortable because the act of avoidance actually tends to increase the anxiety because it inadvertently tells the kid, this is so scary that even mom can't talk about it. Hmm. So you do want to give the response in a, you know, simple developmentally age appropriate way. Now with younger kids, it's oftentimes you give, you know, specific 
answers, but you don't have to give too many details. You don't have to go into, you know, the exact, um, you know, what happened before and during and after and sort of painting this picture for them. That's not necessary. With teens, they may know a lot more. They may have watched videos. Um, oftentimes they have already watched multiple videos before they even get home because they have access to cell phones. And so in their case, you may need to do a lot more talking and a lot more discussing of what happened. And there's oftentimes a lot more detail, but you do want to tell them um, that, you know, there's a, um, you know, when, when kids look at videos and graphic images, you know, on news reports, and if they look at it repeatedly, you know, graphic images stay longer in kids' minds and can cause longer lasting distress. So you do want to point out to them, hey, you know, this can cause you to have actually even trauma symptoms. It can cause you to feel more anxious. It can cause you to have stress just by viewing these videos. And so giving them that knowledge can help them understand, okay, I don't want to watch too much of it. So you do want to, you know, limit, you know, how much, like with anything, right? Some, some lemonade's okay. Too much lemonade is too much sugar. So it's the same kind of same concept. Some news is okay, but sometimes too much um, can be very harmful. Yeah, yeah. Good media hygiene, another set of skills that, uh, well, yes. we're all learning, to, to be honest. Yes, exactly. Um, what are the messages that you think are important to highlight in that conversation? What What do you think should be the 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 main beyond the actual events itself, what else do you think parents should be trying to get across to their kids? I think that in any kind of really dark, traumatic event um, that happens to a child, you know, how do, how do we develop resilience from this, right? I mean, it'd be better if the event didn't happen at all. But when these very traumatic events happen, how can we find a way out of these feelings of distress? And one of the ways, one of the pathways is looking at, you know, what what is this, what can I get out of this? What kind of meaning can come out of what's happening right now to me or around me? And so one of those ways may be like coming to a call to action. How can I help the people, the victims? How can I help the families who've lost children? You know, your kids, you can model for your kids. <clears throat> for example, um, you know, they may be having financial struggles. How can we put together some, some um, you know, information, um, perhaps blankets, food, you know, letters of support to ship over to these families. Or for some people, it may be dollars, you know, donations. Um, for the first responders and the helpers, you want to point out that there were people who were there to save the rest of the kids' lives. So there are, are heroic actions by the adults around them. How can we help them? Perhaps sending letters of support to the firefighters or to the police officers that were there that day to the teachers that were there to save children. And so when you do that, the kids can then learn that they have a sense of control in this very scary and controllable world. What is their own action that they can take? Yeah. Well, I suppose in closing, I'm just curious for your thoughts on the long-term consequences a period like this might have on children. I mean, we've been hearing for the past two years about the increasing rates of mental health challenges uh, among especially uh, adolescents uh, as, as a result of all the disruptions from the pandemic. Uh, not to scare parents, uh, certainly, but just to be aware of what sort of lingering mental health uh, issues could come from, you know, all this barrage of bad news. What, what do you think uh, people should be aware of? Uh, people should be aware. Parent, parents should be especially aware that 
and as you said, not to scare parents, but the rates for pediatric anxiety and depression and suicidality have soared. And, and not just the last couple of years, but really over the past two decades, they have been increasing you know, gradually to the point where we're at record, record highs um, at this point. Hmm. And so it just means that you know, when, there are, when there are such high risk, high stressors at this point, we really have to up the ante in terms of um, developing or teaching coping strategies. We have to, you know, the medicine has to fit the, the illness, right? And at this point, we have to spend more time than perhaps our parents did you know, during their, you know, their generation of teaching our kids ways of dealing with stress. One important thing is we don't want our kids to avoid stress. That can actually inadvertently mm. cause increased inability to deal with stress later. You want them to have stress. You yeah. want them to be able to sit with distress and then to know, hey, I can handle feeling really sad. I can handle crying a whole night because of what happened in Texas. And the next day I can get up and keep going. Um, I can talk to mom about what's happening. I can turn to my teacher when I'm feeling sad and get a hug. You know, I can write cards and letters to these people. So they learn that they can feel depressed, anxious, stressed, and they can learn that they can survive through it. That they can, and that's how you build resilience over time. So in closing, I would say to parents, as much as you can, help to build that resilience, um, not avoiding but to go through the pain. Yeah, well, I think that's a really important message of resilience and uh, a helpful way to get our bearings in this confusing moment. Uh, we have been speaking once again to Catherine Wen Williams. She is a child and adolescent psychologist, also a clinical professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego. Catherine Wen Williams, thanks so much. You're welcome. That's all for the show today. Signing off now. Thank you for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing. And once again, Toyota is leading the way. We hear a lot about fully electric vehicles, and Toyota has them with more on the way. But we also know a BEV is not for everyone, whether it's because of cost, range, or concern about finding a charging station when you need it. Plus, the raw materials used to manufacture batteries are limited. Enter Beyond Zero, Toyota's vision for a carbon-neutral future. 
in vehicles, and in manufacturing plants, too, in the years ahead. The materials used to make just one long-range battery for an EV could be used to make batteries for six plug-in hybrids or 90 gas-electric hybrids. That's why Toyota's position today is electrified diversified, empowering you to choose how to reduce your own carbon footprint with the vehicle that's right for you. A hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or battery EV. So shop, learn more, and get details at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Toyota, let's go places.